Hey there, beautiful brothers and sisters and everyone listening to us. This is Esoteric Side, a podcast, website, and school where we start a dialogue about esoteric wisdom, about psychology, about spirituality, so you guys can apply it in a practical way in your day-to-day life. I'm so happy to be back with you guys again. And we have a very, very, very special guest for uh, today, uh, Dr. Peter Resnick. Dr. Peter Resnick is... Um, uh, a teacher of mine, someone I consider a mentor that I, I, I love just all the stuff he does. He was born in the Ukraine, and he's got over 40 years of experience helping others attain physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Uh, a recognized specialist in the fields of mind-body integrative therapy, behavioral modification, mental imagery, dream work, clinical hypnosis, and morphology. He's got a master's degree in uh, linguistics and social work and a doctorate in health and human services. He practiced psychotherapy, conducted wellness seminars, and helped over 35,000 patients in the former USSR, Israel, France, and the U.S. He's a faculty member at the American Institute of Mental Imagery, as well as a former staff member in, at the Schachter Center for Complementary Medicine, former director of uh, Petri Institute of Hypnosis, and a former consultant to the American Health Foundation. He practices also a millennia-old Mediterranean tradition of healing taught to him by Dr. Gerald Epstein and Madame Collette. I'm not even going to try and uh, pronounce her last name, so I don't mess it up. Peter, how are you today, my dear, dear Peter? I'm good, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. It's a privilege for me to be with you and your listeners. For all viewers, yes, it's a video. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I'm so excited uh, to have you today. Uh, I invited you here to talk about a a range of things. Uh, Specifically, at some point in the conversation, I would love to talk about um, discovering subconscious beliefs, because I know it's something you work a lot with. But first, I would very much like you to tell a bit of your story about how you worked with your mentor, because I'm very interested in uh, this oral tradition that's passed down from masters of student that's very common in kind of this in initiate schools. And, you know, in self-help uh, shows and books, and we all hear about you got to have a mentor, you have a mentor, right? But this tradition has been around for ever so long, right? All the ancient traditions knew that you had to have someone to study under. And I kind of want to hear your story first about how this process happened for you, how you learned everything you know about uh, your master's and, and, and your lineage with this. Would that be okay, Mr. Peter? Dr. Peter? It's, I, I love the question, actually. It brings me back to good memories. In 1989, uh, I was already a therapist for over 10 years, uh, practicing in America, and before that I was using hypnosis in the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, treating asthma, treating serious physical illnesses. And so in 1989, I was a co-director of the Institute of Hypnotherapy called Petri Institute. And everything was fine on the surface. Uh, I was part of this huge practice. We had 11 therapists. I did seminars on quit smoking, weight control, stress management in New York City, in New York, in uh, Hilton Hotel. I remember in a green room with 40, 50, 50 people in a group, seemingly everything successful, but, but I kind of, you know, we were doing good things. 
82% success rate. I was in, on ABC News, the most successful uh, program for quitting smoking in the country. But it was getting boring. A lot of money, uh, a lot of seeing people, but but was getting boring doing the same thing. And I had some personal issues. I was kind of not sure about the relationship. I needed to end it. It was a seven year long relationship. I was in, not in the right place deep inside. And I went, I remember left my friends, it was in, in Vermont, and I went into a little gazebo. And I said, okay, God, uh, if you are listening to me now, this is the time to help. It was the first time I really spoke to God like this. And I said, I need help. I need help to have a vision to where I'm going with my work and to resolve a relationship. Alex, I want to tell you, within three weeks, my whole life changed. First, I got somehow got the courage to speak to my girlfriend at that time. And we parted in beautiful ways, in such ways that still uh, over 30 years later, once a year, we call each other uh, in birthday. She lives back in France. So, but within two weeks, I met somebody who wanted to write an article and we were writing an article together and he mentioned this Dr. Gerald Epstein. And I, had, I was about to give a, um, a workshop that uh, used to have like health expos in New York City and around the United States. And, uh, and I learned that Dr. Gerald Epstein was also giving a talk. So I walked over and introduced him myself to, to him. And he was like so friendly and said, oh, why don't you come and listen to, to me talk? And I did. And he was talking about face reading, which was fascinating, of course, to me. And then he said, uh, why don't we get together for lunch? And uh, I was thinking, who am I? <laughs> he wants to help. He's a very famous person now. I knew he wrote interesting books. But when we met and I said to him, you know, uh, he said to me, oh, you have to come. For, for lunch one day to my home. My wife is a wonderful cook. And I said, well, I'm sorry, not now because I'm going to Israel. And he said, oh, then you have to go and visit my teacher. And I went to visit his teacher. And at, at that time she was 82 years old when I met her. And I remember, and she was in a, a room, you know, like, like a big living room with, 30, 35 people sitting on, on a chair, sitting on the floor. She was doing imagery. And I, in my, my judgmental way, <laughs> said to myself, hmm, you know, I, I, I know imagery, I've done imagery, and um, it's nothing special. I wonder how much she charges, you know, if there are 30 people, maybe even she charges $10 or 300. I'm doing these silly things. And then the a woman next to me is whispering, you know, what a wonderful woman she is. You know, she never charges any money. She teaches students her way. She sees patients, never charges. And I go, <clears throat> here goes Peter. So, and then she does these exercises. And I was used to doing hypnotherapy. I was used to doing positive visualizations. And suddenly she gives an exercise and says, go look deep inside. I don't remember the details, but I remember suddenly seeing, seeing something that 
not a positive visualization, but something that pops into my mind that was scary to me. And I think, what, what's that? <laughs> so I understood that what she was doing was different than from positive visualization, positive imagery with hypnosis that I did. And, and so then after I stayed with her, I introduced myself as coming from Gerald Epstein, and she invited me for personal meeting. I didn't know that she was reading my face and assessing me if I could be a good student, but she did. And she did with me an exercise, an imagery exercise. And I can tell you what it was. And that was the beginning of my studentship. Um, she, I told, she asked me if I remembered any dreams. And I said, oh yeah, I remember the night dream where there were gargoyles, you know, on Notre Dame de Paris, the, the Paris, you know, don't Notre Dame. And, and she said, okay, just close your eyes and go back and see what happens with the gargoyles. And, you know, with my uh, knowledge of how to do imagery, you know, so I thought yeah, I will go and just confront them. And so, so I close my eyes, remember, cars are passing by, we're sitting in her little garden and I go to these gargoyles and suddenly they go Arr! and in the heat of 90 degrees, it's Israel, I got goosebumps, I was cold, shivering. Suddenly I realized it's within my mind. I know I can open my eyes anytime, but they are not under my control. And I suddenly say, Colette, that they kind of are angry. They don't want me to paint them. And she said, find your way and so on. She guided me how to deal with those demons. And I opened my eyes and I understood that there was a whole new world waiting for me because imagination can be used for discovering all that is hidden inside of you. That was my beginning. And then, I, of course, I studied with her for 13 years. I traveled every year. I spent with her maybe 10 to 12 days to 14 days. And in between, I stayed in America and I also studied with Gerald Epstein. So that was the beginning of my journey. Uh, and I, Colette was, uh, he, Colette learned her way from her father, who was one of the first brain surgeons in the World War I. And her father learned from him his mother and her mother learned from her grandmother and going all the way back uh, to the where in the king book in the bible book kings 2 there is a name uh, mentioned called and and the sons of the prophets did such and such thing sons of the prophets were schools uh, like in very much unlike in, in Buddhist monasteries and Christian monasteries, there are, there are specializations. These sons of the prophets were schools where they used mental imagery for healing. And that's where uh, this tradition comes from. And there, uh, and, but originally, originally it goes back even further back to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel uh, one chapter one, where there is this chariot um, appears. If you if you remember the Bible, um, Ezekiel is elevated and sees the four animals that, uh, rotating, uh, uh, a person, um, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, and these are basically four temperaments that we know, four energies that all human beings. A part of so and uh, 
So the original name of that approach was Kabbalah of Merkaba or Kabbalah of chariot, Kabbalah of imagination. And that Kabbalah of imagination was adopted by the sons of the prophets and that's where the tradition comes from. So whatever I teach, I didn't invent. Maybe I added some exercises here and there, but mostly it's a very old tradition of healing that saw an individual as an inseparable uh, whole organism living simultaneously in multiple realities, physical realities. It's a physical embodiment of our beliefs, uh, emotional reality, social reality, mental reality, and spiritual realities. And the imbalance in one level, on one level, would create or, or not create it because it's, it's radiated, it's reflected as imbalance in all others. And in order to achieve wholeness, uh, one needs to address all, all the level. And it, most of the time, it doesn't matter where you start. But it's better to start from the inside, but you always need to anchor it with the work on the outside. I hope I answered your question. <laughs> So, so that reminds me a lot of uh, Ayurveda and uh, how um, they say that whatever happens to your body sooner or later affects your mind, which sooner or later will affect your spirit and uh, vice versa. No? It's like a two-way street. Like your, what happens to your spirit will sooner or later affect your mind, which will sooner or later affect uh, y- your body. Um, it, that's, it's a beautiful story. I, I, I love the fact that you're kind of bearing uh, your soul here and how you started on this journey. Uh, but can you tell me like a little bit about the difference between if you were to have learned this in a book versus learned it in you know, a course with different masters versus literally spending so many years and hours being around these mentors of yours, uh, what do you think the main difference would have been? Or what's the difference between having this teacher that you spend time with and you're around and their energy and their voice and uh, everything affects you and, uh, and permeates you? It's a very good question. You know, Alex, I don't know how it would be with different teachers. I know that Colette never wanted us to become another Colette. She knew, and when I say us, she didn't have, like in university, you have every year tens, hundreds of students. No, maybe, it's my guess, but maybe she had over the last 40, 50 years that she taught, maybe she had 25, maybe 30 the most students. She would pick students very carefully. I was one before the last one. And the last one was my, my nephew, Oleg, who is a medical doctor now. Uh, I brought him, I brought him to America uh, and uh, and he lived with me. So um, after four years of knowing Colette, I brought him to Israel and he became Colette's student. And he was an exceptional student. Colette wrote a little book of poetry, which is a spiritual guidance. And he memorized all 86 poems. And she said he understood them more than anybody else. People could say when he would talk at her salons, number 28, and he would recite the poem and then give perfect explanation on all, all levels of the meaning of the poem. So I just wanted to show off a little bit of my nephew. 
So uh, Colette's way was a unique way. I don't teach the way she does. We work the tools we use the same. Um, we, uh, we use understanding the body, which is human morphology. Um, uh, we use mental imagery, waking dreams. But how we introduce our ideas are very different. Colette mainly taught through us observing her work, which means I would come and sit. Her door was always open. As I said, she never charged money. So people would come one after the other, sometimes waited outside. Sometimes we just sit quietly while she worked with other people. Um, because she didn't charge the money, she was not constrained by, oh, my session is half 45 minutes, an hour. No, sometimes somebody would come, she would give a short exercise in response to her, their request and say, thanks for coming in, goodbye. After five minutes, a person goes and somebody needed an hour and she would spend an hour with them. And people came from seven o'clock in the morning till lunch, she had an hour and a half break, and then she would work till sunset. And I would just sit next to her and watch her, watch her work. And mostly she would either do short exercises or tell stories. She taught through stories. Um, Opposite to what I even now, when I, when I teach professionals and I teach courses to professionals uh, this way, and it takes one year and a half, uh, once a week for two hours. But I teach it in a different way because I, I have different temperament and I need to teach concepts and all the bodies of knowledge that I learned from her. Uh, but she did not teach concepts. You needed to pick out what you learn, what you observe, and integrate it in your way. So she just shared no concepts. So I don't know what would become of me working with somebody else. I know that I have, I've been blessed to have this teacher. She moved on uh, at the ripe age of almost 95. She was short of 90, maybe three weeks uh, to being 95. She died. She taught her last class. I wasn't there. She taught uh, a class, not to her students, who were learning to do what she does, but you know, class to lay people uh, in her beautiful little garden with blue gates. Uh, and she said goodbye to everyone as she always did and said, be happy. Everybody left. The woman who was helping her out gave her lunch. She had lunch, uh, thanked the woman for everything, closed her eyes and died. But I, if you permit me, I want to say something else. A year before she died, I was in, with a couple of other students. And uh, she said to us, uh, somewhere uh, a year from now, uh, it will be my time to go. And none of us objected because she earned her, <laughs> her right to go. So none of us objected. And in fact, she didn't die a year later, she died 11 and a half months later. But she said a year from now, it's time to go. And one of us said, when you go, how do you want to be regarded? As who? And she said, as a teacher. And we said, teacher of what? And she said, the truth. And we said, what is true? And she said, is is the now. 
And we all understood that everything Shiva taught us was how to align ourselves to the present moment and to live in truth. And when we are not in truth, all these exercises of mental imagery, waking dreams, they will reveal to us us. And then she would give us tools, or now I am giving tools, how to balance ourselves, how to make the changes within ourselves to be living truth in the present moment, because that's all we have. That's, that's my answer. You are just blowing my mind, sir. Um, the reason why I asked this question is because working with different masters, working with different um, uh, teachers, there's something about congruence in how they live their life that, that, that helps that the energy just being around them that really helps me kind of follow in that same energy in my own way, of course. Like I, I never try and be my teachers, but I do try and get the energy and their way. There's something happens in my you know, recollection because, you know, like you said, Kabbalah is, you know, passed down from teachers to, uh, to student, you know, by being around them for, for so long. And uh, I, I've read Kabbalah books and I don't get the same thing as being around a master. And I think it's, it's about uh, this energy that the gets transmitted. And as you know, like kind of the, the Eastern traditions and, you know, they, they have all this emphasis in the guru waking up or, or waking you up or helping you out. And there does seem to be something special about their presence. Um, that, that's kind of where the question was, was oriented. Like, have, have you felt that energy of, of your teachers kind of guide you or uh, wake something up in you or, or teach you something just by the, the way they, they, they are? Uh, I can answer, I can try to answer. Uh, yes, I felt something special being around Colette, and it was sense of knowing that she had. And she did not claim that she knew all everything. In fact, when she would speak about something, she would speak very confidently about certain things. When you ask her a question, she would say this and this. Or she would say, uh, this and this, I think so, but I don't know for sure. And you, after a while, you knew exactly what she meant. What she meant, if she said this and this is so, it simply meant that she had the direct experience and knowledge that it is so. It didn't come from intellect. But if she said, I think so, but I don't know for sure, it means that's her mental conclusion, but that has not been her experience. So therefore you felt very settled, very comfortable. You knew where she was. Uh, it was extremely knowledgeable and honest. I believe she was a master, was living in peace without anger. Uh, that's why I call myself a teacher. I'm not a master. The difference I believe between a master and a teacher is that the master lives what they teach. When I begin my courses, um, very often 
particularly when it's mastering certain things, like I have a course on, on fear, a course of uh, called Be Becoming Your Own Healer, and so on, well, on uh, mastering different qualities of yourself, I say, I'm going to teach you something that I aspire to become, but I am not, which means I, I teach, for example, um, I, on my podcast, I was just um, talking about anger. And I teach how to tame the anger, not to judge. And in many ways, in over the years, I tamed the impulses to anger, but I, it's not 100% tamed. And, and many other qualities that I discovered about myself. 30 years ago, many uh, 30 years ago, Gerald Epstein asked me to write a list of qualities that I need to transform. And there is a particular way, it's called life plan of how to do it through imagery and will. And he asked me to write a list. And I remember I found 11 qualities I wanted to work on. And uh, we're talking about 30 years ago. And now I have on my list 10 qualities. How? Uh, over the years, I came up with three more qualities. And so it became 14. And I four I took off the list in 30 years because I don't need to deal with them at all. But then I would say some I mastered to 80%, some to 90 but mostly 40, 50, 60. You know, the Hebrew word for quality is midah. Uh, and the word midah has its own meaning. The word midah means measure, measure. So if, for example, if you want uh, one, half a kilo, you say half of midah, me measure me half of, of, of kilo. So it's a measure. Because the maker, you probably know that the Hebrew is like a magical language. The words uh, are very meaningful. Every word has within itself a meaning, uh, uh, which means if I say, we call it table, but for this little table I have in front of me, but it could be Bob, could be Mabel. It doesn't matter. There is no wisdom within a table, the word table. But for example, the word in Hebrew, the word machala, uh, for example. Uh, means disease, but machal means forgiveness. And uh, if you take word letters and begin to play with the letters inside, it will be forgiveness, it will be making an error, it means prayer, it means heal. So the word disease means you made an error, you need to, to, to pray, and you will be forgiven and healed. You understand? So the words are very meaningful. So, uh, and the word mida means not only quality that we need to work, but we can work only on the measure to which, which we can diminish certain qualities or in, increase certain qualities. We cannot eradicate them in one lifetime. We can only change the measure. So it's a long way to answer that I'm not a master. I'm just working on the measure. <laughs> A Colette was a master, I believe. That's so profound. Um, I, I remember when I was uh, rotating through psychiatry and I was speaking to uh, some of my psychiatry, uh, some of the psychiatrists uh, that were mentoring me there in my internship in, in medical school. Uh, I, 
I asked, you know, and how do you deal with, with the different illnesses that they have? And they're like, oh yeah, the, these people with uh, that are crazy that for labeling something, I know it's not, uh, well, they don't really get sick. And I was like, whoa, that really hit me. Like why people that are in mental institutions that are kind of dis very disconnected with reality with schizophrenia, why they don't manifest illness in their body and they just manifest it in their brain. And I was reading this book the, on um, uh, transgenerational healing. They said when there's twins, one twin will normally manifest everything uh, physically and the other one will manifest their problems uh, uh, emotionally or mentally. And, and I was observing and that there, I do have some patients that are twins and it, and it did observe that, that some one twin will normally be more sick physically and one will probably will be more mentally unstable. It was very curious uh, how this disconnection with reality um, uh, to forms or, or happens, you know? Um, I don't know if you have any insights on that because everything, all the information you just gave us was incredible. And I would like to kind of move the conversation on to the skills and tools you have to determine subconscious beliefs that may not be serving us or that do serve us? How do they tackle these subconscious beliefs? The question is, you know, if you want me to go into the, the twin story, it will take a long time. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, this is so interesting and so awesome. I, I'm, I'm at a crossroads. You know, Peter, you choose. Uh, I, I trust your judgment. I will say just a couple of words, you know. But, um, I think that your audience from knowing you now, Alex, uh, not, well, not a long time, but I think your audience is, is quite sophisticated. So they understand, about, they know about Kabbalah and the, the uh, founding work of Kabbalah is, is Zohar. And it's written in Zohar, you choose the womb opening through which you come which means the soul chooses. So the soul uh, is on a certain level of spiritual evolution with, with the midot, with its qualities. And it needs to come and work on its own issues, but it needs genetic material. It needs physical environment to come through in, in a physical plane. So it chooses the parents. And let's say, it, it's my understanding, I, I am not a teacher of spirituality or Kabbalah, God forbid, you know, I'm a student, beginner student. But um, my understanding is that the soul had issues to, to address. And the issues were multiple. But somehow this particular couple had the genetic material that is right for the evolution of this soul. So it comes as twins, as you know, probably know that even though there are many, many twin studies and, and medicine benefits enormously from, from studies of twins, but if you get to know the twins, you know they're very different. Outward characteristics are the same, but inner characteristics, and I worked with some twins, very different. So each came to work with, through the same parents, also through sharing, remember the twins have this unique relationship with themselves. So, so the soul probably had an issue in conflict with the, with, with the self. So there is a relationship with your own almost mirror, but not, 
and a relationship with the world outside. And uh, these parents are facilitators, but they are, they're, the twin is also a facilitator of the development of its own soul, of another aspect of the self. Am I kind of giving you a little? Okay, so that's, that's it. I don't want to go into it. First, I don't have too much to say. Uh, the second, uh, we, we probably are limited in time and I would like to talk about, uh, you said discovering the unconscious beliefs, but when you said that, I just had an idea that you actually shortchanged yourself because I would want you to say, not only discovering the unconscious beliefs, that's not enough, but if necessary, changing them. So what do you discover something? And then you live with it? No, you need to change. So how do we discover the unconscious beliefs? Again, the audience probably is familiar with the yin and yang. It's a, it's a, every spiritual tradition has this understanding. The Hebrew star, one triangle looking up, the Mag and David, one triangle looking up, one looking down, as above, so below. The four other corners are simply nitrogen, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, earth, air, fire, water. But basically, as above, so below. So the same thing, hermetic tradition in Egypt, as above, so below. Uh, Hindus for 4,000 years said, what is there in the Upanishadas? Upanishadas? What is there is here. What is here is there. What is not here is nowhere. And the most beautiful graphic representation uh, is, of course, yin and yang. What is inside is outside. What is outside is inside. So the same thing, the, un the unconscious beliefs are simply manifested, number one, through our environment, not just the surrounding us. First, our first environment of the beliefs is our human body. I saw Alex, you holding one time my book, Face Reading for Successful Relationships, right? So you are familiar. I don't know if your listeners or your viewers are familiar with it, but the first embodiment of our beliefs with which we ride into this world is our body. Give you an example of, uh, and, and when I supervise my classes, I have what is called clinical morphology. By the way, the word morphology means morpho means form and logos means meaning. So the meaning of form, human morphology is the meaning of human form. So, uh, let's say somebody, a, a soul is developed as, as uh, being able to manifest things. A doer, a creator, powerful, strong, leader, uh, organized, meticulous. That's all the qualities of the soul but a little bit disconnected emotion. So that soul will choose what embodiment, tell me temperamentally, a bilious. It will be a certain body type. And let's say another soul has a belief, uh, you have to fight a war. Life is tough, you have to get your way. It's better to fight than negotiate. And here we have a sanguine. And somebody else has a belief. 
uh, evolved soul, an evolved soul, and it has the belief, I can outsmart everybody. I am brilliant. I am able to prove myself through my intellect, or I'm able to manipulate and trick if I want. And we have the nervous temperament. And yet another belief, uh, I can hold knowledge. I'm brilliant. I'm compassionate. I'm loving. I'm a great companion. Uh, and we have a lymphatic temperament. So the temperaments with which we come is the first reflection of our inner beliefs. The, the beliefs that the soul brings into the human experience. That's the first way to uh, understand the, the unconscious beliefs. But of course, that you need to, for that you need to know human morphology. Then, then you know, you study the book here, and hopefully your <laughs> viewers can get the book and, and learn for themselves. The next way to understand a person's unconscious beliefs is their environment. That is, I, I give um, someone uh, uh, this assignment. Think about outside world as if it came as a reflection of your view of, of that world. Are you living in a safe place? How do you feel? You know, many years ago, I saw, <laughs> I saw a woman a young woman in her 30s, and said, you know, when I was 10 or 12 years old, well, oh, no, no, when I got my first period, my mom said, set me in front of her and said, listen, I want you to know, now you're a young woman. Men are all lying, cheating dogs. And the, woman, the young woman said to me, you know something, Dr. Resnick? My mother was right. That's been my experience. Her mother confirmed you understand? First, she came into this world through this mother, that she also had doubt about relationships. And then her mother gave her this suggestion. And then she lived that experience. And in order to change those beliefs, I, uh, we need to do it one through the inner representation of beliefs, and that is an image, and through act of will. I ask her actually to, to give it a try and to dare and say, there is a man there who I can trust as a friend. Open yourself to have in a friendship with a man. Because you never have friends, men as friends. And so, and, and then also we developed a trusting relationship. And I said, I am a guy, I'm a man. I don't know, well, I don't need anything from you. I'm not going to cheat on you, lie to you make tricks, we have a contract, you pay me X amount of money, and I'm honest with you. You can ask me any question. And uh, so it was kind of a shocking thing for her to discover, yeah, I, maybe I'm not so right that all men, and once you make a little, you know, dent in her belief system, then she goes a little further and a little further. So. The way you know about your inner beliefs is by the environment. If you are surrounded by thieves, so your belief is, you know, the world is full of thieves. If you are surrounded by uh, people who abuse you, I am a victim. That's how 
People, but people think, that, no, 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 I believe, I deserve, I have rights. No, 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 that's your positive wish for. The way we know how what your unconscious beliefs are, more, 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 more than anything, is how you live your life. That's your reflection. Then you need to change the beliefs to change your environment. And of course, then the next a bigger reflection of our beliefs is the big world. All this deforestation, uh, destroying indigenous populations. That's also a reflection of our beliefs, particular Western civilization. Unlike Native Americans who said, you have to take care of seven generations after you. Westerners came and started destroying the nature. And now we're talking about global warming, deforestations, we're destroying ourselves. Yeah, thank you. Thank God you're waking up now. This is a reflection of our beliefs. So now next way, to, uh, another way to look at our beliefs is through a mirror called night dreams. In fact, it's interesting in uh, Bhagavad Gita, it's written, it is through the night dreams that God speaks to man. So our night dreams are uh, encapsulation of stories that reflects to us our beliefs. I, Alex, I want to know how much time we have because I don't know how much I can go into the details about everything. We have 12 minutes. Okay. So, the um, great theologian, Hebrew philosopher, uh, theologian, and the medical doctor, uh, who was a medical doctor of Sultan Saladin of Egypt, uh, Moses Maimonides said, tell me what your night dreams are, and I will tell you not only who you are, but who you can become. The night dreams are encapsulation in, uh, or, or form, image, embodiment of our beliefs. And they tell us who we are and why did he say and who you can become. Because let's say you discover in a, in a dream you're a victim. That's who you are. And when you wake up, what do you think you will be like? You'll continue being a victim. The wonderful thing about night, the night dreams is the night dream is not only a reflection of who you are, it's also a blueprint for where you're going. And the blueprint, those of you who know about architecture, you have a blueprint and then you take a little, and these days probably through computers, but my image is still, you know, you take an eraser and you change a little bit, you work on the blueprint. So the same thing you can work with your night dreams. You can correct your night dreams. And that's what you know I teach within waking dreams. You change the blueprint and therefore you inform your inner being with new information. And then it's manifested in your physical world. So that's another way to know your uh, unconscious beliefs through your night dreams. Of course, you need to know how to work with them. And if your, your viewers are interested, they can go on my website uh, and read my article. I, I believe it's a good article. Uh, it's a manual on how to work on the night dreams. Uh, you can give them, or I can give my website. Yeah, can I? Can uh, I yes, uh, I the website will be in the description uh, if it's on, on YouTube and on uh, Spotify, uh, whatever, it's, I'll, I'll add it drpeterresnik.com and they go on the articles and there there is an article there are many articles but you go the article called the dream work and there i 
teach not only about the night dream, but how to enter the dream and make a correction. Another way to, to work, to discover your uh, unconscious beliefs is through probing or discovery exercises. I'll give you an example. Um, I, I, taught, I taught this class uh, and with, with a group of people, a big group, and I gave the exercise. See yourself being attacked, open your eyes. I, it's very little time that I give to people. Why very little time? So they wouldn't start making up stories because then there is no value if they begin to think, oh, what do I want to see? Then you're making up something, it has no value. But if it spontaneously something jumps in your mind, that reflects what is inside. So I said, see, see yourself uh, to this particular group, see yourself being attacked, open your eyes. And in the group, there was a guy <laughs> in his fifties, but you know, sleeves rolled up like this, muscles bulging and obvious he wants everybody to see how strong he is. You understand there is some kind of issue, but you know, uh, that it's so important to him that everybody would see how he, uh, oh, and he had like, you know, a very, very thin um, shirt and their sleeves really were rolled up so that everybody would see every little muscle in his body. And so he opened his eyes and was a little embarrassed. And, but he wanted to get value from the, from the exercise. So he said, I saw myself being in the corner. I was like 10 or 11 in the corner sitting like this and two kids were kicking me with their feet, with their boots. I never even asked him whether it was historical memory or it was just a symbolic image. It didn't, wasn't relevant, not important. Because we know deep inside there is this little scared boy. That's why he needed the muscles to show that he's so strong. Inside, he's scared. Inside, he's a victim. So I taught him to go back to this image and knowing, and at that time when I gave this exercise, I already trained them a little bit. It was already this third or fourth class and it was a 12 week class. And so he knew that everything is possible in imagination and I asked him to go and make a correction. And it was interesting, when you make correction, correction you, you do it spontaneously. You don't plan, I'm going to go do this and this. You follow your intuition and you do what comes in the moment. And when he opened his eyes after a minute, a minute and a half, he said that he grabbed their feet and pulled them and they fell. And then he let them go because one of them started crying. And, and then he said, listen, I don't want to fight. I want us to be friends. And this was it. So, and I asked him to do it for seven days and meet those kids and negotiate. And the interesting thing, and the reason I remember him, but all this, this particular course I taught years ago was because after not maybe that class, but two classes later, he stopped wearing this show clothes. It felt like now he felt secure. I don't know, I know I've seen so many people, I don't know what happened to him. But my feeling is there was a shift. He felt much more secure. Interesting, in the same class, and probably that's why I remember it, because there was a woman, and it was in, in Manhattan, uh, 
in my office and had a big space. Uh, a woman, you know, in the beginning of the class, I say, please introduce yourself. So everybody says something in a couple of words, what they do in life. And that woman said, I'm a social worker. I, I work with underprivileged uh, kids. Um, I work in, in South Bronx. It kind of, you know, she needed to, to state you know, what she does and that she is charitable and, and caring and extending herself to underprivileged. So, and when I said, what did you, what happened to you? She said, well, you know, remember the CSL being attacked, right? So, which is a probing exercise to, to what? What happens when you are unsafe? How do you act? Because more, very often we don't know what happens and this spontaneously appearing image really tells us what would happen if we were in danger. And she said, you know, this big black man grabbed my purse and I kicked him in between his legs. So we learned two belief systems. One, this lady is not a victim. <laughs> she knows how to fight, stand up with her. Two, she's a bigot. If it's an assaulter, if it's a, a criminal, it's a black man. Even though she said, I helped, blah, 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 blah. No, she, she is definitely a, a prejudice and she expects if there is danger, it's coming from a black person. You understand? So you learn a lot from these exploratory exercises. When I teach my course to, to clinicians, and as I said, it takes um, a year and a half, I probably spend good four to five months teaching imagery. And mostly it's not theory. I take people through, uh, my students, I take them through at least 45, minimum 45 exercises. Why? Because I want them not to theoretically learn what the exercises are and how to do it to others. I want them to experience for themselves what it is and if necessary, how to correct, make corrections. So we said the embodiment of your beliefs is one, your physical body, your environment, surrounding environment, and then the big environment of the whole planet. And then your images that come spontaneously in response to discovery exercises or probing exercises, and then night dreams. This, this is how you uh, know your unconscious beliefs. We have a few minutes, so uh, we still have some time. For yeah, uh, we have seven minutes left. If you have a little bit more time, a couple more minutes, uh, two or three, whatever, if we go a little bit over, I have no problem. But um, uh, I was speaking with you earlier, and uh, I think a couple of days ago, and I told you that one thing or a manner of identifying a belief system, a belief systems or very strong rooted belief systems that are not serving uh, my patients or that maybe they are is exaggerated responses you know uh, a lot of times uh what someone will say a phrase like this is the way real reality is right and then you just kind of understand that okay that what they just said is is a belief that they hold an absolute like generalization for life that really programs the, the, the way they interact and view the world but a lot of times uh when something happens uh someone will overreact like a more or an overreaction is kind of a subjective right but they will have a very strong reaction and emotion to it and and that to me 
really identifies, okay, they have a belief of this being bad or wrong or some belief tied around this reaction. Give me an example of specific, specific uh, probe that you'd say that will exaggerate what we are. Oh, okay, so for example, uh, a friend of mine uh, the other day, she, she was uh, speaking about her, her sexuality and how she was uh, pansexual, right? And uh, uh, I, I made a comment uh, about that, you know, I don't think the pa term pansexual is... Uh, uh, actually expresses the, the full range of that. And we're talking, and she really got angry that I was, you know, judging her sexuality. I was like, no, no, no I'm not judging, you know, your sexuality at all. I'm just saying that, you know, the term uh, pan and sexual in general, I don't think uh, grasp the entire concept of that, right? Uh, so I, I understood that, that her, she was very, she had a belief that her sexuality either was wrong or judged by other people. Does it make sense? Yeah, when you when you jump to defend something, it means you have a niche, for sure. And my question to you is then, it's a, it becomes an intellectual awareness or something, right? How do you go then about helping a person? In, in my aspect, in, in my practice? Because to me, the reason I use imagery, because images can be changed. You can go into the image and change it and reinforce, uh, uh, inform your subconscious mind with new images that begin to fuel new feelings. And then, and then your belief system is changed. But when it's intellectual awareness, how do you change it through affirmations or what? Well, I, I have this belief, uh, this understanding of reality that, you know, uh, affirmations don't really work that effectively if uh, you, there you have a belief system after belief system after belief system that believes the opposite of what you're affirming, right? So I, I like to explain to my patients that you have a network of beliefs, right? Well, I sometimes ask the question, you know, what comes first, a thought or an emotion? And some people say thought, some people say emotion. And as you know, there's many schools of thought uh, in psychology that say, well, the thought comes first or the, the, the emotion comes first so that they both come first, right? Or that they come at the same time. But what I think is that there's a network of beliefs that's constantly pumping out automatic thoughts and emotions. Anything that happens, uh, anything that, that comes into mind, any action that triggers uh, will be filtered through that network of uh, beliefs that will constantly be pumping out like your heart pumps out blood automatic thoughts and emotions based on those beliefs so what i like to do is first dissect and understand the belief behind that so the person is aware of that right so once they understand that there is a network and that's how we work we have like, this network of subconscious beliefs that constantly pumps out that emotion uh if and we can dissect those beliefs then we understand that and then we understand that the beliefs are malleable and pliable and we can change one out uh for another but we can't ever change one out or we can never take one out and that's it no we have to substitute it for another one and there's many ways that i do that like one of them is i, I do believe that sometimes people saying oh yeah i forgave my mom no let's say they have a horrible mother and consciously they forgave their mother but in reality they they hold the emotion there. Like that was, it was only forgiven in your mind and it was never taken down to a true uh, profound 
emotional forgiveness and that change never really happened. So I, I do take, uh, I, I speak a lot about the languages of the subconscious. And I think one of the, the strongest languages the subconscious has is a very powerful emotion. So the way that I work with my patients is that I make them feel very intense emotions related to one of the release systems and very intense emotions related to another one where we're liberating the emotion that's behind uh, like the programming um, or structural uh, factor. There's this concept there, there's a detonating. I don't know if you're familiar with allergy theory. There's a structural conflict and a detonating conflict. A very quick example. Uh, let's say a man uh, you know, is eating shrimp and his girlfriend breaks up with him. He has huge emotional pain. And so next time he's eating shrimp with a girl, he might be allergic to shrimp. And that's part of allergy theory. In, in the first example, or the first part, it's the structural conflict. And then the second time he was eating shrimp and he's allergic to shrimp and he has to go to the hospital, he almost dies. That would be the detonating conflict. So I try and get down to the structural conflict of the belief, release that emotion, understand it in a different way with very strong emotion. And then we try and uh, replace that belief with another one with very strong emotion as well. Of course, there's imagery. Uh, of course, we, you know, we do deep relaxation so we can access different parts of the subconscious mind. But I really focus on the person feeling that emotion. I don't know if that makes any sense. 100%. And look, look, you cannot beat success. So if, Alex, if it works, if people benefit, God bless you. It's yet another way. You discovered your way and you, you practice it and, and enjoy doing it and keep exploring. You may uh, incorporate new things that you learn into this and it can become a, a wonderful whole approach. Or it will be just a small technique for, for certain issues that you deal with and for others you need something else. Uh, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting approach. I uh, think go now yeah yes um yeah you know in neurolinguistic program there's just a whole thing about uh, anchors and how in a strong emotional anchor something to the subconscious that's so nothing new i just kind of confined the way of explaining it um peter you are an awesome teacher mentor i i love you very very dearly i have such strong respect and uh, appreciation for you uh thank you so much for joining us and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. To all the viewers out there, this has been Esoteric Sci, the podcast, website, and school where we talk and we have to start a dialogue about esoteric wisdom, psychological wisdom, and spirituality in a practical way so that you can apply it to your everyday life. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Alex Hildana. With me today was Dr. Peter Resnick. Thank you so much, everyone, for uh, contributing to this project.